So, of course, he slaps her. Tony slaps him for slapping her. (laughs) She slaps him for slapping Tony. And it's this big slap fight that's actually quite hilarious. So they have to come up with a new rule, which is no slapping at the dinner table. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, world. Here's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who will totally be there for you when you have to know how many licks it takes to get to the Tootsie Roll center of a Tootsie Pop. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we will be saving the movie that inspired an entire nation to point their fingers to the sky, 1977's Saturday Night Fever. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hey, ladies. How are you guys doing? How'd you sleep? We're good. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome back. Um, Yeah, sleep. Not too good last night. You know, I was... um, yeah. Quite impressed with my ability to not have had night sweats for a long time now. But last night I <laughs> wow, did wake that's up impressive. Sweating. I know. And I thought I was really onto something. But um, you guys were the cause of my sweats last night, I want you to know. Oh, you're welcome. And not in a good way. So this is how worked up I get, you guys. To all of our listeners, Kristen and Michelle are on top of it. They are so organized and impresses the heck out of me. So smoke and mirrors, everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. So I get a little um, anxious the night before, the morning of, and obviously during the night before because I had this dream that we had a special guest that we were going to be interviewing and taking all this time to uh, get a time that worked for everybody on a schedule. And it was like nine o'clock on a Tuesday night, and we finally get all <laughs> together and we're getting ready to record. And I go to push record or whatever I do, and I don't have any of the equipment. And Kristen is P.O.'d. I mean, she is not happy with me. And I tell you, I'm going to be honest. If I'm going to so P.O. Like Kristen, I'm reminding you this is a dream. Yes, yes it's a, a dream. This is not real. I was not angry with Carolyn. In real life, um, I don't want to piss off Kristen. I don't want to piss off Michelle either, but something I just <laughs> Wait, don't. is that true? Are you worried about making me mad? Oh my uh, God. Yeah. I'm so scary. <laughs> and, but it's not you in a bad way. It's just in a more like, oh, my gosh. She's a people pleaser, Kara. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and they were both mad at me. So that was a double bad. And our guest was mad at me. So I'm like, okay, you guys, just wait for me. I'm going to run home. I'm going to get the equipment. I'll be right back. I know exactly where it is. It's in this big bag. So I go run home. I get the bag. I come. I open the bag. And that's not what's in the bag. It's not the right equipment. <laughs> it's some stuff and then- with cords, but it wasn't the right stuff. I have to ask you, because this is how my stress dream would go. Did you then compulsively dig through the bag thinking it's got to be here it's got to be here and you just keep looking over and and picking things up and looking at it in your hand and picking it up and looking at it and you just never ever find what you need no actually what i was trying to i was trying to explain to you Kristen. i'm like see these cords Kristen? these look a lot like the other cords and so when i saw the cords Kristen, hanging out the bag i assumed that it was because you are really so stressed right now i feel like i'm sweating right now it was because it was Thanksgiving weekend and it was just a really hard time to schedule people and it was getting later and later. And I think like I do in a lot of parts of my life, I was like, okay, guys, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I'll figure it out. And 
I don't know what happened after that because I woke up in a cold sweat. Well, I was about to say, you didn't have a menopause night sweat. You woke up in a cold, you woke up in a different kind of sweat. It was a different kind of sweat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, oh, hair I'm was so all sick in of the this all oh, of that, man. but, um, I have to I sleep mean, with my hair up in a big old knot on top of my head now because of the sweats are so bad. You guys, it's real. It is. I've even yes. bought like new sheets and new jammies. I but wear a patch. Let our, <laughs> this is a testament to our listeners to say, you guys, we really care about the product we put out. I mean, we you, think a lot about this <laughs> and we want to do the best for you guys. So Yes. And don't piss off Kristen. Yeah, that's that's. I think I think of everything. That's the real moral. I am of not this an story. angry person. No, I'm not, not admonishing of Carolyn at all. No, look it, at her. Look how mean she looks. No, no. it's not that. It's not a fear with her of little being, ponytail on top of her head. Yeah. I know. Right? It's not like she's. Do you have your little bubbles. crush? Do you have your little crush um, necklace? No, on? usually oh. I do have my crush necklace on. Now I have crows. Oh, yikes. That's that's scary. Carolyn, I'm sorry. No, and just to clarify to everyone, it's never, Kristen is not um, mean or anything. It's more of like, I don't want to disappoint these two ladies. And um, they just bring their A game every time. And so. And so does Carolyn, by the way. Exactly. Well, thank you. By the way, uh, says the person who um, is the complete sound engineer and edits every podcast podcast episode so meticulously and perfectly. So. You're sweet to say a that. A skill yeah. that I could not even, no. like, if you gave me no. crayons, I might be able to do it. But don't ask me to touch a computer and do it. <laughs> crayons. Well, thank you. But you know what? The people don't hear that part. They hear um, your eloquent, you know, explanation of things. And I'm like, uh, yeah, me too. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, <laughs> anyway, but that's okay. I don't know if that's we true. Must, we can okay, just go on. Let's, yeah. we must go yeah, on. We, we need on. to get okay. to our episode, you guys, on with the show. The topic we'll be discussing includes some difficult subject matter, including references to rape and suicide and some offensive words that we agonized over. Not just whether or not they would be appropriate, but whether or not we could even bear to say them out loud. We were not conflicted over the same words. It turns out that each of us, based on our own personal experiences, brought to the table a different word that we couldn't say or hear without distress. But we also felt strongly that each of these words was pivotal to the story. So, we decided to honor the script and the intensity of their scenes by saying the words out loud during our recording. But when you hear them today, they'll be bleeped. Even so, I have no doubt you'll know what we mean, and more importantly, how we feel. Thank you. Those of you who haven't seen this movie in decades, or for people like me who had never seen this movie at all, let me just refresh your memory. So Saturday Night Fever is the story of Tony, a 19-year-old Italian-American who lives in the Bay Ridge neighborhood of Brooklyn and works a dead-end job in a paint store. His father is a laid-off construction worker, his mother is submissive and depressed, and the family runs on slaps and insults. The despair deepens when Tony's favored brother, the adored Father Frank, quits the priesthood. Despite the drag of his home life, Tony comes alive and finds relief on the weekends when he and his buddies, Joey, Double J, Gus, and the unhappy Bobby C., dress up and hit the local disco 2001 Odyssey, which they do when they're not fighting rival gangs. Tony may be flat broke and without a future, 
But when he blow dries his hair and zips up his tight, silky pants and hits the dance floor, he is king. His moves and his strut make all the ladies want to dance with him and have sex with him, but not necessarily in that order. Their lives that seem stalled on one side of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge come alive when they're at the disco. Gearing up for Odyssey's big disco dance contest, Tony discards Annette, the sweet, albeit lacking self-esteem, neighborhood girl who has crushed on him forever, when he spots an elusive and sophisticated, semi-talented dancer named Stephanie who lives on the other side of the bridge. Metaphor alert. After an admittedly fairly unimpressive disco dance, except for that finger-pointing move, obviously, Tony and Stephanie win the all-important dance contest, but mostly because the judges are racist. Tony knows that. Then his so-called friends rape the nice neighborhood girl in the backseat of his car, and his friend Bobby C. either falls or jumps to his death from the bridge because his girlfriend is pregnant, and Father Frank, who is still a priest so he knows these things, tells him the Pope won't give him dispensation for an abortion. It is a tough night for Bobby C., but tough, too, for Tony, who now has to come to terms with his friend's death as well as his disco loss and, subsequently, the loss of his dreams and all he knew to be true in his life. After almost raping Stephanie, yes, that's two rapey scenes for those keeping track, Tony flees Brooklyn on an all-night subway ride, still in his iconic white suit, looking for Stephanie and perhaps for a new way of life. That's a lot. That is a lot. And I'm going to help kind of break it down a little bit, you guys. I'm going to give you a quick rundown of our cast of characters. Here we go. We okay. have Stephanie, portrayed by Karen Gorney, who also, you might recall, played Tara in All My Children, where she and Philip Brent were a hot couple. And Stephanie's the love interest, right? Yes, Stephanie okay. is one of our love interests. Yes, she's I guess semi, she is the love she's interest. the she's the semi um, good dancer. <laughs> yes, semi. <laughs> Just even semi is in quotes. And, yeah. then, and even in the still photos, she doesn't look like a good dancer. If you see no. their like dance shots, and she looks very awkward. Um, so moving on, we've got our friends. We've got uh, Tony's friends, who were Bobby C, Joey, Double J, and Gus. Barry Miller. <laughs> is who portrayed Bobby C. And fun fact, he won the Best Actor Tony Award in 1985 for his um, performance in Biloxi Blues. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. So that was because we kind of heard fun Bobby had a tragic storyline in our movie that we're talking about today. So glad to know he he um, got to play a good part in one. He was Best resurrected. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Yes. Then there is Annette, beloved Annette, that um, Michelle did such a great job of describing her character. She is played by Donna Pascal. You guys, Angie. I know I love her. I really love, love her. Angie. Yeah. She and Donna was only 22 when she played <gasps> Annette. Can you believe that? Ooh, I know. And she's from Brooklyn originally, had to unlearn her Brooklyn accent as she went through acting school. And one of her first assignments was. You got to get your Brooklyn accent back for <laughs> oh, this. So oh my funny. god, that's funny. So I also heard she was too pretty for this, and they made her gain forty pounds. <gasps> oh, are you wow. kidding? Wait, I she know. gained forty pounds. She must 40 have been pounds. like really emaciated, minute, because she's yeah. little. She's yeah. so petite. Oh, that makes me mad that they made her. I know. That. Oh, that character. They didn't want her to be heart. pretty enough. Oh yuck. Well, um, she's a doll. one really cool thing that I think she did. She was the first actress um, to portray a lesbian um, character on a daytime 
soap opera. She, oh, in 1983, right. portrayed Dr. Lynn Carlson on All My Children. So we got a little theme In going. 1983? Yes. Wow. wow. Yes. I agree. That was pretty um, ahead of its time there. I know. And quickly, I want to share two other characters that are in the movie that have some fun stories li- lines that go along with them. So Doreen is kind of a minor character in the movie, but has kind of a major part in helping um, us understand Tony a little bit more. She's played by Denny Dillon. And when I watched Saturday Night Fever for the research for today's episode, I was like, I know that woman. How do I know her? And then a couple weeks later, I stumble upon um, a Saturday Night Live skit, and she was a, ca- a cast member in Saturday Night Live. When? Yeah. Um, well... I don't know. Go oh, look. Sorry. I mean, <laughs> in the That's 80s. for you, the listener. That's yes. your homework. There you go. You find out when Denny Dillon was on Saturday Night Live and give us a call. That's what I meant. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. I like as, her name. As well Denny as Dillon. the fact that Fran Drescher, our friend, the nanny, had her first speaking role in Saturday Night Fever. She portrayed Connie, who was the woman who comes up to Tony at the disco and utters this famous line. Are you as good in bed as you are on the dance floor? And invites him out on the dance floor to dance. So her first spoken words as an actor were, was that famous line. Was to Tony Monero. Yes. To, yeah. And then there, did you guys know that two cameos in the movie, the first one is John Travolta's mom comes into the paint store and she's an irate woman giving Tony the business. <laughs> and then his sister Ellen sells him a piece of pizza. Love it. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. And then, of course, we have John Travolta, uh, our hero, or some would say anti-hero, Tony Manero. Yeah, let's just talk about John Travolta for a minute. Um, I'm not a huge fan, but there are some things I didn't know about him and about his career that I find so interesting. Like, I love to know people's histories and, like, how they got their breaks and how they made it. But, um, like, I didn't know John Travolta was a dancer first. That's what we say in our family. Like, if you have actors and stuff that's... <laughs> In the acting community, they'll be like, dancer first. Um, he was a dancer first. Um, he says he was always aching to be in show business. He just knew it. He was discovered in a production of Bye Bye Birdie by an agent and then signed as an agent, um, went to L.A., and then he quickly got um, hundred, lots and lots of commercials and then was cast in some things and then eventually led to Welcome Back, Cotter. Um, and so then we know he was wildly famous for playing Vinny Barbarino, um, so much so that RSO signed him to a million-dollar contract to star in three films. I just wonder how many... When it says million-dollar contract, surely that means more than one million, right, you guys? Like, Or back then, do you think it was one million dollars for three films? Yeah, a one million dollar contract. Yeah. Uh Well, anyway, everyone thought, even though, even though, you know, speaking of in our, in our, when we did our Teen Idols episode and there was some, um, disagreement over the hysteria of John Travolta, I should read to you some of the things in the article I read from Vanity Fair. Trailers being knocked over, this kind of stuff that Donna Pescow was saying because of Vinnie Barbarino. Like it was insane. But, um, Uh, everyone thought it was crazy because RSO signed him and people didn't usually make TV to movie transitions successfully. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though that's what Travolta always set out to do. And that's what he wanted to do. Like I said, he was so wildly successful as Vinny Barbarino. They asked him to star in his own spinoff TV show, but he refused because he wanted to do movies. Um, And then they offered him the boy in the plastic bubble. 
Um, and that's where, um, you know, he got very successful. That's where he fell in love with Diana Highland. And I have some interesting, um, uh, some, a couple of interest, interesting stories about that in a minute, but, um, they they knew they wanted him to play Danny Zuko in Greece. That's really the only one of the three movies that they knew. Um, had already been Duty in the Broadway musical. Duty. He was Duty. <laughs> he was Duty. Oh, yeah. funny. Um, but there was a stipulation that the movie version of Greece could not begin shooting until the spring of 1978 because the musical was still going strong. So they had this time to kill, and that's when they um, were starting to look for another project for him. Um, and they squeezed it in. They did it super quick, right before Greece. Wow. Like they had to do it like within six months or something like that before oh, wow. he was slated to start Greece. So it was super, super quick. And um, it actually was Diana Highland was the one who persuaded John Travolta to take the role. Yeah. In the Vanity Fair article that um, I talked about earlier, um, it says it was Diana who persuaded Travolta to take the role of Tony. I got the script. I read it that night, Travolta recalls. I wondered if I could give it enough dimension. Diana took it into the other room, and in about an hour, she bursts back in. Baby, you're going to be great in this. Great. This Tony, he's got all the colors. So I was feeling pretty embarrassed for being a Gen X pop culture podcast host who had never seen Saturday Night Fever. Um, so recently we watched it and you guys, I was pretty horrified at what I saw. I was like, how was this one of the most celebrated and beloved movies from the seventies? Because like other than John Travolta's, you know, pretty sweet dance moves and hair, obviously, um, it was, it was so full of just blatant and uncomfortable moments, like racist and sexist remarks and just kind of really uncomfortable plot points. Um, let's not forget the rape, but it was a gang rape. And so I was just, I was pretty horrified, but I was also pretty baffled trying to match what I just saw to what I had always known of as this really celebrated movie that was so popular and that people loved. The truth is, this is a really dark and painful movie. And so I bet that's not what you were expecting. So no. your feelings are probably double because you were expecting a celebration of the dance. And really, it's a very, it's a dark and painful movie. It but was all again, all, there, you're, you can't be at fault for thinking that and feeling that way because that's all we remember. Right. We think of it as a dance movie. We think about John Travolta dancing and we think about the Bee Gees. And that's what we think of when well, we think of and, Saturday Night Fever. And having never seen it, I went into it just thinking it was a movie all about the dance, right? The disco mm -hmm. dance. And I was really yep. excited to watch it. But uh, Carolyn, you had never seen this movie, the entire movie either, had you? No, not until yesterday. Oh. Sure, I had seen clips, you know, those quintessential moments from the dance floor and John Travolta's strut down the street. But I could never have told you what the plot was, although I did own the album and I could sing mm -hmm. every word to every song. Yeah, that's about as far as it went. Yeah. And, and Christian, I didn't see it. Yeah. I did not see it as a kid because it was rated R. I didn't. Right. So the only people I knew who had actually seen the movie were adults and babysitters and if, it, if my friends had seen it, it, they were my unsupervised friends, the ones whose parents let them stay up to watch Saturday Night Live. But no, nobody else my age had seen it. Yeah. But again, they had the album. Everybody had the album. Right, right, right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Anyway, listeners, we got to thinking there must be a reason why Carolyn and I had never seen it. Although, like uh, you guys said, I know I had watched that opening few minutes Mm -hmm. with the strut many times, Mm -hmm. Um, although I never made it further than that. Um, And Kristen, like she said, didn't really see it right when it was released, saw it later. So we knew we needed to investigate and try to determine why that was and just what it is about this movie that makes it so beloved. Even in today's culture, today's woke culture. Isn't that what the kids say, you guys? (laughs) Today's woke culture. Yeah. So we did a little digging and we found an article that was written in 1999 by Roger Ebert that detailed why he thought Saturday Night Fever was Gene Siskel's favorite movie. And after reading that article, we all had light bulb moments that definitely altered our reactions and opinions of the movie. Maybe not enough to make us actually like it, but certainly made us pause and rethink a lot of it. But I think what he said in that article, uh, it does not put me in the camp of not wanting to see it again. What what he talked about opened my eyes up to a completely different movie. And I oh, watched it again last night with relish, with oh, brand good. new eyes. Um, but before we, be, let's go first to the origins of this movie. Where did this movie come from? So it was based on an article that was written in New York Magazine by somebody named Nick Cohn. And it was called The Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. And so Nick Cohn went about um, researching this working class subculture that would meet at the disco on Saturday night after their day, after their whole week at the factory. And he had some theories about who these people were and what they were doing there. There was a whole culture that was being created. So this article makes a big splash. It gets a lot of people's attention. And Robert Stigwood of RSO Productions, who produced the Bee Gees and Andy Gibb and Grease and Jesus Christ Superstar and all sorts of things, wants to buy this article and make a movie about it. He offers Nick Cohn $90,000 to option his movie. And everyone's like, no, they've never made a movie out of an article before. What are you talking about? He's like, trust me on this. And so they're off to the races. And we get Saturday Night Fever. Well... Come to find out, Nick Cohn made it up. This was not a researched article. So here's what happened. The guy goes to 2001 Odyssey, um, and when he gets there, he doesn't even go inside. There's a huge drunken brawl going on outside Mm -hmm. the disco. Somebody falls down in a gutter and barfs on the journalist's pants. And so he turns around and he goes back to Manhattan. But before he leaves, he catches the eye of this character that is just sort of like this cool dude in his gabardine trousers, just calmly watching the whole thing unfold. And he thinks to himself, that guy is going to be the star of my article. And he names him Vincent. And he names him Vincent. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So he's just landed here. He doesn't know anything about New York. And so what he did was he took Vincent and he combined him with people that he knew from growing up in Northern Ireland, including a known gang member. And he said, my story was a fraud. I'd only recently arrived in New York. Far from being steeped in Brooklyn street life, I hardly knew the place. But still... The fact of the matter is that Saturday Night Fever was based on the article, fiction or nonfiction, that ran in Mm -hmm. New York Magazine. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what the reality was, the movie is based on the characters he created Mm -hmm. and the scene that he created. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, for sure. 
Okay, so let's get back to those themes that Roger Ebert was talking about. Because there has to be a reason that Michelle thinks this is the worst movie ever. But Gene mm-hmm. Siskel, legendary movie reviewer, says it's his favorite movie of all time. So much so that he actually owned, he's now deceased, but he owned John Travolta's white suit. Which, by the way, I'm sure you guys know this, that that silk shirt was actually a bodysuit. Yep. Long live the bodysuit. Long live you, the bodysuit. Do you guys know who was bidding against him for it? No. No. Ooh. Jane Fonda was bidding oh, really? against Gene Siskel for that suit. Yep. And he outbid her by $2,000, apparently. It now lives in the Smithsonian, and it's worth $100,000, it says. Wow. Wow. Oh. Mm-hmm. The way that Roger Ebert puts it, is that for Gene, Saturday Night Fever was a movie that transcended ordinary categories of good or bad. So no matter what you think of it critically, it was a movie that spoke to him, spoke to him emotionally, Mm -hmm. possibly because of what he was yearning for in his own life. So there's one overarching theme in the movie and a few others that support this theme. And all of them come to life in that very first iconic (laughs) opening scene. So you all know it. Everybody's seen it. Exactly. It's the strut, the bravado, the shiny shoes, the tight gabardine trousers, the silk shirt, the leather jacket, the domination of women. He stops no less than two women on his walk down the street to sort of pester them. And he's swinging a paint can. So this tells us Tony's story. He wants to be this important, desirable, powerful person who commands an audience, right? But he's just a kid who works in a paint store. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the theme that Roger Ebert states is the desire for all young people to escape from a life sentence of boring work and attain their version of the beckoning towers of Manhattan. Getting out of Brooklyn. Yeah, that's um, to me what the whole underlies the whole movie. I think of that first scene is that he's strutting his way out of what the confines that are holding him back, the yep. paint can's one of them, certainly. Yep. And he's strutting his way to freedom, kind of. I mean, I think we can yep. almost look at that strut metaphorically now when we know more about it. It becomes more than just his cool strut. He went to, he he had almost like a throwdown with the director over that strut too, though. He really? hated the way they first made him film it. Yeah, he he demanded they make him do it again. He actually said he was basing it on um, like the black kids he went to school with. That's how he Mm -hmm. was. That's how he wanted to do it. Okay. So theme number two, theme number two, according to Roger Ebert is disco equals freedom. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Like everything, the outfit, the hair, the music, and especially the attention. I think they offer him an escape from his mundane life, his mundane job, the home where he's still treated like a child, um, you know, where his dad messes up his carefully coiffed hair. Um, It's almost like he's, it's like he's two people. And then, but at the disco, he's not the paint store guy. He's important. And more than anything, he's confident. I mean, he's confident. Look at the differences when he's sitting around the dinner table at home. Like with Um, his napkin in his collar. Yeah. Yeah. But at the disco too. And then just all the, the, you know, putting on all the clothes and everything. It's almost like he's putting on a suit of armor, right? To go to the disco. And I just felt like, um, yeah, two two totally different people going on. He's putting on 
his power. He's uh-huh. putting on his importance. And then, of course, there's the scene where he's doing like the crotch rock and he's zipping up his tight yeah. trousers. <laughs> That's like putting on his masculinity because at uh-huh. the disco, he's powerful. He's important. He's masculine, right. unlike at home and at work. Right. Mm-hmm. It's really the only place in his life, though, that he he has a choice about things and he has oh, some yeah. freedom. And it's where he's actually admired and validated because he's certainly not getting that as, at home. No. And, um, you know, his mother worships his older brother, Frank, and his father's criticizing him from even when he gets a raise and he's excited about his raise. His father is, you know, criticizing that raise. Mm-hmm. And really, in our studies of life, we know that every human just wants to belong. After safety and getting your your food needs met and air and just being alive, survival, is to belong. And he belongs when he is at the disco and when he is on the dance floor. Yeah, he walks in and the crowd parts and everybody knows Tony is here. And even his friends, when they're at the disco, elevate him and treat him like he's sort of the king of the table. They do what Mm -hmm. Tony says at the disco. Mm-hmm. But right. not anywhere else. Right. Because yeah. at the dining room table, his brother is that elevated, mm-hmm. literally, yeah. the yeah. pictures over the mantle. Um, so at home, first place where you would hope you would get some validation and some and feel important, he doesn't get that there. And when he tries, they knock him down. Right. Yeah. Knock him down over <sighs> and over again. Ugh. Uh, So there's a terrific Vanity Fair article about Saturday Night Fever called Fever Pitch um, from 2013 that was written by Sam Kashner. And I'll be referencing it a few times today. I think I already have once. Um, And he says that um, he researched, you know, all of this. But he said when he followed these guys around, he said he literally witnessed that some of these guys, they have no lives but he said dancing's all they got. Like that's the mm-hmm. only thing they have of importance in their lives. There's this place in Brooklyn where they come from called Bay Ridge mm-hmm. is really far more removed from Manhattan that I mean I don't know about the geography of New York and its boroughs. I have no idea. So I know people who live in Brooklyn and they live just across the Brooklyn Bridge and they jump over all the time. But this area where they're from called Bay Ridge is really a lot more removed than I thought it was. It's like a 45 minute subway mm-hmm. ride to Midtown Manhattan. And it makes you understand even more how these guys are so sheltered, how they're so sheltered from what they see as the culture in Manhattan, the opportunity in Manhattan. Like they just got no shot. They've got nothing. And I don't know what Bay Ridge is like today. So if you live in Bay Ridge, I bet it's a wonderful place. Oh, I'm sure it's different. what's What's really interesting is if you go to the website for Bay Ridge today, right now, um, they say... Okay, Bay Ridge, a thoroughly residential neighborhood on the banks of the Narrows. Bay Ridge feels worlds away from the bustle of Manhattan and retains an old school vibe. So they're actually telling you how far away it is from Manhattan. And they right away, the very first thing they say it that this is the neighborhood where Saturday Night Fever was set. And it has resisted the waves of change sweeping through other parts of Brooklyn. Ooh. I know. So it, maybe it is exactly the same. <laughs> I, it could be exactly the same. If you live in Bay Ridge, let us know. It's almost like, well, if you can't, if you can't overcome it, just own it. Yeah. And you know what I, what I think is interesting that you guys brought up about the author of the article. Is, is, is it Ray Cohn? Is that what you said his name was? Nick, Nick Cohn. Oh, Nick. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. How he was basing some of his story on these Irish, was it Nor- Northern Ireland? Northern is that what Ireland, you said? yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I find that interesting because of um, my dad is Irish, raised Catholic. There are these um, ethnicities and these Catholic families that are so um, embedded in this um, identity that you're kind of stuck in it. Like, yes, the Italian mother, the Irish mother, the oldest son, he's going to be a priest and Usually, the younger son is going to stay and take care of the of the mother. Mm-hmm. That's oh, kind of that the, is the so dynamic of mm-hmm. of that. And so, I can, there's some definite similarities with those two cultures, even though they're worlds away in other ways. So, what I mean is that um, the author had an experience with Northern Ireland and Irish families, and he kind of used that experience. Uh. Um, which is very similar to the way Italian Catholics and families can be. And so he wove the Irish story into that um, Italian family story. Right. And, yeah. Because there right. were so many similarities. And you're right. And the, and the structure of their families is probably very stifling. And yes. the Catholic Church kind of gets a bad rap in this movie because it's one of the things that restricts them from, um, like you said, the oldest son would be the priest. So Tony's older brother is Father Frank and everybody thinks Father Frank is the bee's knees and Tony is a piece of shit. But then, as we know in the movie, Father Frank comes home and he has quit the priesthood. And I remember when I saw this the first time, I was like, well, what happened? Did like did Father Frank die? No, Father Frank didn't die. <laughs> He's just not a priest anymore. When um, Father Frank comes back and he and Tony are up in Tony's bedroom kind of having their conversation, he's spelling out to Tony like, this life is scripted for us. I was going to be mm-hmm. Father Frank from the get-go. Uh, that's how our parents saw me, and I didn't have any choice in the matter. I lived their vision of my life. And I think he, Tony is starting to maybe see, oh, yeah, this is the way life is. And his only freedom comes when he is on the dance floor. And um, that's when he finally has some choices. Yeah. So this is the purpose that, that Father Frank serves, because when he leaves the priesthood, Tony says, what, don't you believe anymore? And he says, all I ever believed in was their fantasy of me as a priest. And then when he sees Tony at on the dance floor, he gets very excited. And Father Frank says, the only way you're going to survive is if you do what you think is right. If not, you'll just end up miserable. And so it's sort of like Father Frank is this launching pad, giving Tony permission to use his dance as to get out of here. Um, one thing, and you mentioned this, um, Michelle, one thing that really elevates this movie is the actual dancing by John Travolta. He's not dubbed in with a body double. They show his full body the whole time. It's not quick editing. It, it's almost like an old 50s musical mm-hmm. where movie musical where they the camera's just trained on Gene Kelly the whole time instead of cutting away and showing somebody's face and then showing somebody's feet. And that really makes this a mm-hmm. high quality dance movie. And then you have John Travolta, who's also doing the acting, which is why they didn't have to dub somebody else's acting, mm-hmm. um, dub somebody else's dancing in. And it sounds to me like John Travolta took that very seriously. Yeah, you you talked about him being worried that he would be able to bring enough nuance to the character, and it's interesting. I cannot imagine anyone else being Tony Manero. There's nobody else that could play this role. And part of it is because he was able to be such a nuanced character because he's this, he's playing this sheltered guy who makes, he's kind of bumbling and he makes a lot of ridiculous Mm -hmm. mistakes, 
but he doesn't play them as funny. He had to somehow do that without making it a joke. Like when he's trying to have sex with Annette, Donna Pascal, um, he says, are you on the pill? She says, no. He says, do you have one of those IOUs? <laughs> and it's and it's not a joke. Like we and there are lots right. of things like that where he's trying to be a cool dude and he just doesn't have the information. He doesn't have access to it. There are lots of places like that where he was able to transcend the material he was given and make it more important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we got so back to the dancing. Uh, Travolta actually clashed with the director on a number of occasions, um, and one of them was the big dance solo. Um, He had a huge meltdown. He says, Travolta says, I was crying and very angry because of the way the dance highlight was shot. I knew how it should appear on screen and it wasn't shot that way. You couldn't even see my feet. The sequence, they edited all you guys for close-ups. So all of the knee drops, the splits, the solo that he labored and labored over learning for nine whole months, they cut it off at the knees. And so he said he knew for that scene to work, he had to be seen head to toe so no one would think someone else was doing the dancing for him. Um, So think about that. One of the most famous dance numbers in the history, pretty much a film, almost didn't make it to the screen because Travolta says- it's a different movie without it. Oh yeah. It's a different movie. It's so amazing. Like that. Yeah. And Travolta says, I called, I was crying and furious. And I said, Robert, I'm off the movie. I don't want to be part of it anymore. So he basically gave him an ultimatum. And so then they said, all right, they gave Travolta license to re-edit the scene um, over the director's objections. Um, he was 23 years old, John Travolta. It says at 23, Travolta knew what he wanted and what he could do, and he was protecting his character and his dazzling moves. And that's, he was right. That's impressive. He was right. Yeah, at, and at 23, though, also to put yeah. yourself in that position, that's that's a little bit that's of a dicey position. Yeah, for sure. That's being committed to your work more than your paycheck. Yeah. Carolyn, you I were hope- going to say something about the nuance. So I was just going to say, you guys, that a couple of my, um, I don't want to say favorite scenes, but the ones that really impacted me, um, Tony or John Travolta didn't have to say anything. His facial expressions, the way he could use his face said so much. And that really impressed me. I knew exactly mm-hmm. what was going on in, in his mind. That That's really the definition of true acting, right? And I think a lot of people will come away from this movie thinking that it was shitty acting, but what they really mean is he was kind of a shitty character, right? And there's a big difference. Um, So the acting was really good. The character, not that likable. So, okay, back to the dancing. This cracked me up, and I did not notice this until I watched it this time. I never saw this in the first times that I watched it. Karen Gorney, the love interest, a.k.a. Stephanie, as his dance partner, not a great dancer. Oh, no. <laughs> you guys, she's awful. She's terrible. And I never noticed it. And I think it's because your eyes are so trained on John Travolta that you don't even see her. You don't mm-hmm. even know. Right. Yeah, I feel like I feel like Donna Pesca was a better dancer. Oh, my God. She was so much better. And she has her place in history. Donna Pascal has secured her place in history because she is the person who first dances with Tony on the dance floor in the movie. The first time we see John Travolta dance is with Donna Pascal, And she's really good. She can keep up with him. And it's so funny that Tony then dumps Donna Pascal for Karen Gorney, who really can't dance at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, I don't really think he chose her necessarily for her dancing ability. I think it mm. um, was much more than that, that she yeah. represented um, something deeper than her dancing yeah. ability. I think she represented like the other side of the bridge. 
yeah, basically. That is true. That is true. But the viewer is led to believe that he's noticing her uh-huh, for her dancing. Uh-huh. And that, by the way, when you first see Karen Gorney dancing on the dance floor with the not John Travolta, whoever her partner is, that is a body double, which I also never uh, noticed before. But the woman who's supposed to be Stephanie on the dance floor when John Travolta is so enamored with her is a woman who has a completely different body shape and a really bad wig. And she just <laughs> looks at the ground the whole time, which I don't know if you know this, but when you dance, you're not supposed to look at the ground. The teacher's always like, look up, look up. So you can't even see her face. She's just like looking down at the ground so you don't see her face. <laughs> And I just think that that's, that made me very disappointed in the filmmakers. Like, how did you pay so much attention to John Travolta being so true to his form? And then you right. throw away this moment with Karen Gorney? I don't right. know. Right. And even when they're in the dance studio rehearsing, um, I, I, I thought it was very noticeable. She's trying to do like these warm, like these plies and these turns oh to warm God. up. And it's really, it's not even it's very horrible. good. I feel like I could it's do a plie horrible. better than that. Yeah. And I almost wonder if that scene, she's so bad doing her plie. I almost wonder if that's on purpose because know. we know that Stephanie is supposed to be a poser. She's trying to be a classy lady, but she doesn't quite have the chops yet mm-hmm. um, because they certainly had a dance coach on set. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted her to do plies properly, they would have said, hey, why don't you do it like this instead? It would have taken like 10 minutes of instructions for her to be able to do that properly. And they didn't. So I wonder if that's supposed to contribute to our idea of her as she's not really a ballerina. She just thinks that it's classy to be a ballerina. Right. <laughs> but again, I think that it's not her dance. There's something mm-hmm. else there. Kind of like you said, it's what she offers, this life on the other side of the bridge. Just, well, and they might, uh, have, they might have a bond because they are both trying yeah. to escape Brooklyn. And she can talk the talk. Not very well. She talks about, you know, oh, he's so vivacious. And then she says it again like it's her new vocabulary word. She's very vivacious. Is that how you say it? Vivacious. Um, And he's behind her. She did it. She got across the bridge. And so I think he's attracted to her because of that. When we're talking about the dancing, can I just ask about that um, that scene where they're going and they're twirling around for like an inordinately long time? Oh, Where they're holding hands, you mean like the two hands? Yeah, and, and like twirling, twirling. Final dance thing, and it goes on for a really long time. Like I, I was almost wondering if they were standing on one of those like lazy Susan things, like Rex Smith was, <laughs> and sooner or later, because I'm thinking you can't do that for that long. And were they really spinning, or was like the room spinning around them? And it was, it and they're was throwing not... their heads back. Yeah, you guys, that's yeah. my that's my least favorite movie dance move. Right. Nobody ever does that, and everybody looks stupid doing it, but for some reason, movie makers think we want to see it. Right. It just looks dumb. And it went on for it's way dumb. too long. So, the third theme is living with or escaping toxic masculinity, or as Roger Ebert says, the difficulty that some men have in relating to women as comrades and friends and not simply sex mm-hmm. facilitators. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, women are ridiculously degraded 
in this movie, mm-hmm. I feel like. Um, and once again, in that Vanity Fair article that I love so much, um, Kasner quotes the producer's assistant um, who said that the, what the writer did so well was he created an accurate look at how men related to women in that moment in ways you would never get away with now. And right. I thought, I was actually pleased to read that because I was like, oh, thank you for recognizing that, you know? Um, like, I, like, here's a quote from Tony. He goes, you make it with some of these chicks. They think you got it. Like, yes, <laughs> they always right. were like, you make it, right? You like make how it. You, you make, you it, make it, you. it. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, they're just, they're like pawns in their little game, basically, you know? Well, and the father doesn't help. Because no. Tony's father at home, he is the king of the household, and yet he's a little mealy little character. He has been out of work for six months, and you can tell that this is grating on his masculinity. He's not able to provide for his family. And when his mother, when Tony's mother talks back to the husband, he comes at her as if, I'm out of work six months, and now you talk back? Mm-hmm. As if yeah. my masculinity is... is withering away and now you're rising and how dare you so of course he slaps her tony slaps him for slapping her (laughs) she slaps him for slapping tony and it's this big fight that's actually quite hilarious so they have to come up with a new rule which is no slapping at the dinner table (laughs) (laughs) we had that rule in our family too um it's it's so it's it is such an illustration though of what they were seeing in mm-hmm. um, that part of Brooklyn at the time. Uh, John Travolta said that to do some research, he went into 2001 Odyssey uh, to do some research, and he had to wear a hat and dark glasses because he was everybody knew who he was. Um, but all the dancers got wind of who he was, and you know they start yelling, "Hey man, it's fucking Travolta! Hey Barbarino!" You know, all yelling and everything, and all the girlfriends too are rushing up to him. John Travolta says all the guys were pushing girlfriends away from him and like being like, hey, get away from him. Don't bother him. Give him some space. And he says the whole male chauvinist thing just really got to him. And so that's what he just that's he's like, wow, that's going to kind of inform me on how to play this character, because he said that's really how they were. They treated the women. That's what Tony was trying to escape. Because that's how his mother was treated. That's how he knew his little sister would be treated. That's how he treated Annette. And here comes Karen Lynn Gorney, who's challenging him on that, saying, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. not, I might be more than a woman. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But I want to add that this was kind of hard for me to watch in some ways because yeah. I can tell you guys that I kind of was an Annette mm-hmm. in my high school life. But I can tell you those boys I went to high school with, they were kind of, like that. And, yep. you know, if you were the goody girl, like, oh, you're the kind of girl that, you know, guys, guys will marry, but nothing before that. I mean, that mm-hmm. was kind of the line you got. So you're not worthy. Right. For, yeah. I mean, and it was like this, yeah, backhanded compliment. And, and this, the, uh, what's the word I want? The lengths that I would go to. I mean, I'm embarrassed to think about it now. I know. And Me I too. can just, oh, I could so relate to Annette. And I know we were saying it was that. Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, or whatever. But I can tell you, in the early 80s, in southern New Jersey, Catholic high school, a lot of those guys were like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And you just thought that was your role. I mean, I hate Mm -hmm. to say, um, I wasn't going to, I didn't think, I just thought that's the way it was. I'm sure that's what Annette did. Well, and I think that this movie, it's it's not just this movie. What's kind of an ongoing theme. So even though this is a definitely, definitely uh, a part of the movie, all these parts, 
with the the degrading of women were really disturbing and the hardest parts for me to watch. It's not like it was anything new. It's not like I was like, no, wait, what is no. this? What are they showing? We see right. it and we see it in everything. We still see it today. I think it was just mm-hmm. more of a, a commentary on what um oh, yeah. what it was truly like. Yeah. And I don't think it was I don't yeah, have to I like do it. Think it's commentary. But, yeah. I don't think they were trying to pass it off as something that was okay at the time. In fact, I think it was one of the things that trapped him. Um, that would be, even in the the most difficult part of the movie to watch, is the part where Annette is raped in the back seat. And Tony is sitting in the front seat, and some people interpret him as being nonchalant about his friend being raped in the back seat. Whereas I actually see the look on his face, not as nonchalance, but as resignation. Like that is an, there's a reason that Annette gets raped in that scene. There's a reason that Annette gets raped in the movie. And that is to show Tony what his life would be like going forward. And so I see this look on his face as, I guess this is it. This is my Mm -hmm. life. These are the people that would Mm -hmm. be the people that I'm closest to. This is how they treat other people. And so I see the look on his face as really sad. Although, you guys, he does say to her early in the movie, he says, are you a nice girl or are you a And she says, can I be both? And he says, no, it's a decision a girl's got to make early in life. And, and then after that horrible gang rape scene, he then says to her, is this what you wanted? And he's yelling, is this what you wanted? You proud of yourself? Now you're a and she runs off crying, and it's just and heartbreaking because, it, yeah, it's so conflicting. He doesn't turn around. He doesn't yell at his friends, the rapists. He yells at Good the point. rape victim. <laughs> right. And it's like you yeah. can't win for losing. I mean, yeah. you know, that's the thing. Like, you felt like – listen to me. I'm like, I'm on net. You jumped yeah. through all the fucking hoops, and I jumped through yes. that hoop, and you said, no, sh- you know, you should have jumped mm-hmm. through this hoop. What are you doing? And uh, mm-hmm. You really know, cannot win. She right. said, um, oh, so it's, what's interesting is that the gang rape scene, it was one of the first scenes to be shot in the movie. Um, and I'm, cur- I'm encouraged that they all say, the director, the actors, especially the actor, um, I forgot his first name, his last name's Pape, who plays the one. Oh, Peter that, Paul? Yeah, Paul. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Peter, from yeah. Fame. He played Ralph Garcia in Fame. He, they say it was a harrowing thing to have to shoot and watch. Oh, really? Um, but it makes me it feel makes better, me, you guys. It does, but I it also makes me feel like that. it was more intentional and it had more mm-hmm. purpose. Um, and then the author of that article says, though we cringe at the way her character is abused, we see her strength and her resilience. In her effort to become the kind of woman who can attract Tony, she allows herself to be abused by the boys she probably grew up with, went to school with, danced with. Yet her mm-hmm. character has the most insight into how women's roles were changing. one of the most harrowing moments in the movie is post-rape. They're playing on the Verrazano Narrows bridge and Bobby, the one who wants dispensation from the Pope so his girlfriend can get an abortion. And so now he is getting all loosey-goosey with the bridge and playing funky games. And they're like, Bobby, don't do it. Don't do it. And this is when Donna Pascal gets out of the car and she is scared. Everybody is scared. Even the guys who are show-offs are scared. And Bobby falls off the bridge and he dies. And this is a pivotal moment in the movie um, that involves the bridge, this conduit. He's he's trying to escape his life. Bobby is like 
a metaphor for Brooklyn. He's stuck in Brooklyn. He's going to be stuck in this life because his girlfriend is pregnant and they're Catholic and she can't get an abortion and he falls off the bridge that would be his freedom. He wants to go across the bridge too. Right. He's probably all of 19 years old and he's calling it. So the question is, did he kill himself or did he fall? That's nobody has an answer for that. Yeah. Well, can I talk about that entire night? Because I think that entire evening from the dance contest to that moment led up to um, Tony making whatever decision he might make Mm -hmm. at the end. But I think he starts to see when when they're awarded the the prize first place for the contest and he knows they didn't deserve it. He knows that the Puerto Rican couple, I believe, are the Mm -hmm. ones who deserved it. And this realization is starting right then, like this life is not necessarily fair here. These people were better. They should have gotten the award or the prize gives it to them. And people are shouting while this is happening. They're calling him. So Tony knows, well, of course we won because they're right. And he starts to see like that might not be right. Like something in him doesn't sit right. And he gives them the money and all that. Then they go out to the car and that's when the scene um, where he forces himself on um, Stephanie and, but also there too, where like the struggle of these two parts of him um, Mm -hmm. realizes like, oops, this is probably not the right thing to do. Um, she I think he's, he's, I think just to stay there in that moment for yeah. a minute, I think the fact that he knew that the Puerto Rican couple was better than him, that his whole future is taken away in that moment. He realizes exactly. that dance is not going to be his escape. He's emasculated by this and he tries to rape Stephanie in the backseat of his car, a very half-hearted attempt in an attempt to regain his masculinity. Huh. It's a power. We all know that rape is about power. It's not about right. sex. But, and so he's he's trying to get that masculinity back. But do you feel like there's another part of him that's butting up to that, that's saying, like, this this would be the path. If you chose this way, this is the kind of man you would be. But there's yeah. something in him gnawing, yeah. that still small voice that's saying, but if you make these other choices, even though maybe you don't have choice, it could be this way. So really, the backseat of the car in that scene is the moment he makes the decision, because he's going to play the role of his of his life in Brooklyn, reclaim his masculinity and rape this girl cuz that's his right and I don't see women and Stephanie fights him off and he acquiesces easily and those are the two opportunities that he has. I'm going to stay here in Brooklyn and be a dick or I'm going to go with this woman who comes from the other side of the bridge in Manhattan where women are more than this. If you think about it, um Annette represents Brooklyn Right. And that's his old life. And Stephanie represents Manhattan and the new life. Stephanie fights him off. And that quote unquote lets him lets it happen in his eyes or in the in the director's eyes. The boys succeed. Whereas Tony does not. I'm seeing it in a different way now, too. (laughs) That's That's so dark. It is so dark. It's so dark. Yeah. And can I talk about the dance contest for a second? Tony knows that the Puerto Rican couple is better than they were, and that's what takes away his power. And so he takes the trophy, like you said, Carolyn, and gives the trophy to them and storms out of the disco. And you want to believe that he understands that it's a, that it's as a result of racism. The truth is, I don't think he gives a shit about racism. I think it was just about him. 
and he's just pissed that he that they were better than he was. Now I do think he's on his way to thinking that that might not be right, but it's going to be a long road because he's lived in that environment for a long time. And for you to be able to spout those words so readily, so easily, it's going to be a long time before you say, "Hey, they should be first place. It doesn't matter that they're from Puerto Rico, right?" It doesn't. It's yeah. he's not there yet. See? The goody two shoes in me wanted to think that was exactly what was happening. That he gave it back because no, I don't they think. I mean, it. that's my I, opinion. Of no, I, think I don't you're think probably he's probably right. So, um, the end. Tony has won the dance contest unfairly. He questions his place in life. His friends rape Annette. His friend Bobby dies. Then he rides the subway all night and arrives at Stephanie's apartment in the morning, still wearing the suit. What happens next is really interesting. He's arriving on Stephanie's doorstep, and you're not exactly sure what he's doing there. And he's not sure what he's doing there either. And it begs the question, this is when we have the song, um, How Deep Is Your Love? This is when How Deep Is Your Love is entered. But it's not the ending of a classic love story. They're, do you think they're going to be a couple? Do you think they end up a couple? What is uh-uh. happening at the end of the movie? I don't. I don't think they end up together. I don't think that he. I don't think he has enough confidence in an, anything yet. I don't think you can just hand a trophy back and then cross the bridge and be done with it. I think mm-hmm. he still has a lot of work to do. So I don't think he doesn't have a job over there. He doesn't have a place to live. He doesn't have. I mean, he can't live with her. Oh, and she <laughs> points out that he can't type. So what? Yeah. So get? no, I don't think he. I don't know. I. To be honest with you, I didn't really care. I didn't care about really either of the characters. But I also, I don't. I don't know. It was just a very unsatisfying ending. Like oh, what happens? That's you know? very interesting because it was satisfying for me, especially mm-hmm. because they didn't kiss. Because what it said to me, and they even say, so we'll be friends. Yeah, we'll be friends. And I saw that as a whole new horizon for Tony. He's never had a woman for a friend before. My question is, will he be able to do it? And I think Stephanie is wondering that too. That's why she's like, are you sure? Are you sure right. we can be friends? Now, what does she say when he shows up? You here to rape me again? Here yeah. to try to rape me again? Yeah. So she knows. Oh, exactly that's a who good friend. Yeah. <laughs> well, but the it, last scene is of them. It's just a close up on their hands. They're holding hands, and it's how deep is your love? And it was really moving to me because I saw it as Tony wanting to try. I don't know right. if he's going to be successful, but he wants to try. Well, and also, does he have a real friend? Because if no, you, you know, the, no. what set him off, walking off and going on that that subway ride everywhere was that Bobby had died. Bobby yeah. had fallen right after he had said to Tony, you never called me. <gasps> Tony was supposed to call him yeah. and he never did that night. And is, is there a guilt that Bobby is died because I didn't call? Does he feel somehow responsible for Bobby's death? And if so, who on earth can you talk to about this? He certainly Not doesn't have guys. any friends. Right. Yeah. They're to talk about, I mean, mm-hmm. he has, I guess, kind of friends, but are they really his friends? Not going to talk to his parents. That's the only person that he feels like he could talk to, maybe. And he actually says to her, he says to Stephanie, I'm not going back there. There are assholes back there. I'm not going back. And that tells us that he's completing his narrative arc. This theme we have of getting out of Brooklyn and bettering yourself. That's him drawing the line in the sand. Um, Okay, so here's a question for you. Is he... Is he an anti-hero, like a bad guy that you're rooting for, or is he a good guy stuck in a culture that has only taught him to be a douchebag? 
Mm, can it be both? Yeah, maybe. <sighs> That's, uh, and it'd be interesting to know what we all think because I think he was he is a good guy caught in just a bad. Not that that excuses anything, but when you're mm-hmm. born into that, you don't choose your parents. You don't choose Baybridge, New York versus oh, sorry, sorry versus Cherry Hill, New Jersey, or something. I think mm-hmm. that some chips were stacked against him um, from mm-hmm. the get go that make it really hard. Um, yeah, that's so. I think he was a good guy. So you were rooting for him. I was, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's it sounds like, Michelle, you weren't rooting for him. You don't care. Yeah. I don't care about him. I just don't. I mean, that's just my opinion on this movie. And that's kind of yeah. a failure of the movie because no matter who your main character is, you're supposed to make the viewer slash the reader care about them. Well, but, Even you know, movies aren't for everyone. Things. Movies aren't for everyone, right? Everybody has movies mm-hmm. they, they can connect to and that they don't. This just happens to be one that I don't. Mm-hmm. Even after I know all of this stuff, even after definitely I can look through it with a, in, through a much different lens. Now, after mm-hmm. doing this research and reading these articles, 100% I can look through it as a different lens. I don't like it any more than I did two months ago before I had known any of this stuff, though. So. so depending on your perspective, Saturday Night Fever either defined an era or it reflected it. But if you were only in fourth grade... It definitely defined it. The music, the clothes, the hair, the moves, the disco dreams. We were all miniature disco queens in 1977 without ever setting foot in a disco or even seeing the movie, for God's sake. And that right there is the definition of iconic. So no matter how it translates today, it absolutely changed the culture then. Okay, let's see. What else is there to talk about? Did we miss anything, you guys? Oh, yeah, the music. Right. (laughs) Which is so vital, so historic, that it deserves its own episode, which it will get in next week's episode. But you won't have to wait until next week's episode to learn a fun fact about why we were so surprised by how dark this movie was. Keep listening after the closing for a little surprise. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of the gang at Three's Company. Jack Tripper, Chrissy Snow, and Janet Wood, two good times. Two happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. Cheers. 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 The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. And there's a reason so many of us don't remember the darkness. And so I saw this movie for the first time as an adult, and I didn't remember how dark it was either. And I wondered if maybe in my 20s when I saw it the first time that I didn't completely understand what was happening in the backseat. I really had to ask myself that question because I did not come away with this darkness the first time that I saw it. But here's our answer. So a couple of years after its original release, the movie was recut and re-released with a PG rating to appeal to a larger audience. And that is the version that so many of us saw. They removed racial slurs, they removed derogatory terms for women, and most importantly, they removed the rape scene. And when was this? Well, they said a couple of years after, so it it must have been when it was... 
I think I read yeah. this last night and um they the screenplay the writer of the screenplay and everything did not agree with it but this was to make more money to get more people to see it because the soundtrack had been so successful it was still in the theater if i recall so you know movies back then would stay in the theater for years at a time so even if it was the you know 1980 Mm -hmm. it could still be in the theaters okay well hold on this changes everything in my history now i'm actually thinking i might have seen it because the parts when i just rewatched it that i remembered were the dancing parts and all that you know i remembered some of the conversations but it was when I was just recently watching it that I was thinking, oh, no, I didn't see this. I didn't. But, Kristen, what you're telling me is is that I'm right. I didn't see that movie. You didn't see I that I saw a movie. different movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, you did. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. My mind is blown right now. Yeah. And when my I was in blown. my 20s, I mean, I seriously thought maybe as a you know, 25-year-old woman, I was still so naive that I didn't understand a lot of these things. But I saw it at an outdoor venue. There's no way they would right. have shown that movie with all of those words and that rape scene to in, in a park. They would have oh, shown yeah. that in a park. Right. Okay, wait. This is in, this is incredible to me right now. I feel mm-hmm. like I almost need to take a moment, you guys. I know. <laughs> like right? my whole my, the history of my child is being re- rewritten in my head right now because mm-hmm. I'm now thinking. Surely I saw it then, or I saw it at a sleepover. Somebody had the sure. VHS or something, yeah. and I was allowed to see it because it was PG. Yeah. I mean, your mom may have even taken you oh, to it's it. Totally possible. Totally. My mom loved your the mom soundtrack. Done so. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know what? I feel like everything's back in place now. In my because <laughs> I was really just I was really upset at myself. I was like, "Fangirl jail again," because you never saw yeah. Saturday Night Fever. I never saw that version. I Thank I you, seriously Kristen. thought that the only reason that I understood the darkness at this point in my life was maturity. I just thought I didn't perceive well, it. Well, and there's something to that too, though. There is something that too, because a lot of stuff when we're kids goes over our heads. We've talked about Mm -hmm. that with ice castles and flowers in the attic and some other things we've talked about. There are things that were inappropriate that went over their head. This, Mm -hmm. however, took inappropriate to a little bit of a different level. Well, I don't know. Flowers in the attic was pretty bad. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, That's (laughs) crazy. And I'm just sitting here thinking, thank God I watched the right cut of it. I'm thinking, what if I had watched the, the PG version before we did this? episode and not knowing there were two and I'm thinking what are you guys talking about it was yeah so I'm giving you the synopsis like and if you're keeping count that's two rapey scenes and Carolyn's going wait what right I mean think about did I dismiss them right and so many uh, so many people who are listening are probably like this is not the movie that I remember or I just had no idea that this I didn't know but Kristen that makes sense too because I would say every single time we've either mentioned Saturday Night Fever or we've posted a picture of something Saturday Night Fever related on social media, we get DMs. And you guys, we get DMs that say exactly what this episode you just listened to was examining. We get DMs that say, oh my gosh, I just recently rewatched Saturday Night Fever for the first time in, you know, 30 years, and I was horrified. I couldn't believe it. And they detail all the things we've just been talking about. And so what I'm thinking now is that these people too are remembering the PG version. They remember and the now PG watching version. it saying, what what did we see? And they and because might not we have didn't seen that know, one either. Of, yeah. This is this is the the pivotal thing. Because we don't know that there are two different movies, we put it on ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. We think this that we did something wrong or we perceived something incorrectly or we misremembered something and it's not us. Wow, that's fan, that's a fantastic fun fact. 